ورساله بقى لاوباما ليسن يور اوباما وي ار ايجيبسن ويمن يو ار ليسن اوباما شات اب يور ماوس اوباما شات اب يور ماوس اوباما سي سي يس سي سي يس مرسي Hello everyone, welcome to the Unacceptable Podcast. This week we're joined by Nihal Alasar and uh, we're also here, uh, it's just me and Ken as usual as well. So how is everybody doing? Uh, we're good, thank you for having me on. Of course. How are you, Ken? I don't have a job. I'm doing awful. <laughs> if any listeners want to want to give Ken a job, or like a sugar mommy type thing, either. Or way. sugar. Oh yeah, Ken's been looking for a sugar mom mommy. I told you to go to Thursdays in Montreal. What's, yeah, that's a lot. That's, yeah, maybe. That's where all I don't have money are. to like. Also, hi. No, you're frozen. I'm frozen. No, Ken. The other thing, too, I've been wasting my money on Tinder dates. There was a really tense <laughs> one that we'll talk about maybe after the serious stuff. <laughs> okay. Oh, wow. it's, it's reparations. You should pay for women. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like, yeah. give your money. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. What money? I don't believe in that. Like, <laughs> money on dating shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I always find that like I mean my partner and I like we we always just like all either alternate to pay or we split the bill. Like I'm not about that. Well this one I didn't even life. get my food. If we could just digress now, I'm so okay. I forty dollars for a pitcher of sangria and like the bouncer was like puffing his chest out at me like the entire night. So I'm trying to have a nice <laughs> evening. Like every time I go in, he's like, Oh, you gotta wear a mask even on the terrace. I'm like, okay. He's like, oh, dude, you got to wash your hands, like, with the stuff, like, every single time you stand up. And I'm like, dude, you didn't even get my food. I took zero dollars. That's how bad this was. Anyways. <laughs> that sounds terrible. Um, yeah, I'm a frustrated person. She was like, yeah, you seemed really frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I can't have a job. <laughs> I, I'm just too lazy to date, like, during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I kind of figured something out, so I'm like, I had a bit of an explosion of Tinder activity. You know, really? personal growth oh, comes in true. waves. True, yeah. But it is riskier, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just found out, so my, my boyfriend's from Alberta, and uh, he's driving over to see me. I haven't seen him in a while. And uh, in BC, there's been a trend where people have been egging cars with alberta license plates wow um because like they don't want albertans to like come and spread their disease or whatever build the wall <laughs> yeah there's gonna there's like literally anti-alberta hate crimes in bc <laughs> they want to separate they can go right ahead and separate no just kidding and we'll egg them no yeah um so that's that's basically my my dating situation um but yeah, so so we're anyway this week we're here with the hall. It's gonna be a good episode. We're gonna talk about the progressive international. We're gonna talk about internationalism. We're gonna talk about Egypt, and we're gonna talk about football or soccer for our United States Canada listeners. No. It's uh, football. Okay. Well, <laughs> I think uh, this is this has always been like a point of uh, contention. Uh, 
some people because uh, then there's also the football like the nfl football but uh, uh for the purposes of this episode we'll call it football out of respect for nahal um, um so yeah do you want to say a little bit about uh you you have a recent article that came out in verso uh which is uh where i buy a good bulk of my books here in canada <laughs> um so you had a recent article on the progressive international do you want to say a little bit more about that yeah sure so um i wrote this article in may right when we were in the midst of uh, pandemic panic um and i was just thinking about uh what would happen after the pandemic and after this crisis and i was thinking about how um governments around the world have already like started laying off workers uh and that sort of thing and um and and what what was coming after um i thought it's it's going to be either really frightening or uh <laughs> it's going to start some sort of like revolutionary consciousness uh <laughs> in the masses uh and and it all depended on our reaction in this very moment mm-hmm. um so uh i was thinking more about international solidar- solidarity and it managed to coincide with the launch of the progressive international um which is supposed to be um a project that combines left movements together uh and acts as a sort of connective tissue between those movements that already exist around the world um what has been uh, made public about the project and what people have been focusing on mostly were uh, famous people who are involved in the project uh who are the council members um and you know like how um the discourse on twitter becomes like oh this person is involved then it must be bad or yeah. this person is involved and then it must be good and uh, and it's all about the it becomes all about the optics of the thing rather than what it's supposed to do mhm and and when i wrote about it i i was thinking about how um basically since the collapse of the soviet union in the, in 1991 um the left worldwide has been weakened and we haven't had a sort of a robust left internationalism in a while uh, and that the left has been intellectually defeated uh so in my mind any project that um aims to unite the left and uh it doesn't need to be perfect right now uh, but especially with the intellectual defeat of the left since 1991 um i feel that we should uh, give it at least the benefit of the doubt mm-hmm. um or try to um as socialists and as communists try to become a part of it to at least influence the discourse within it uh, or, or how it's portrayed around the world uh because the other option would be to just isolate ourselves uh, and right. this thing would exist otherwise and reactionary forces can hijack it yeah well absolutely yeah um i i find right now there's kind of a tension between sort of uh like i think internationalism i i it would be useful to get a definition going just because i think right now 
there's been a, an issue where it means different things to different people. And in some ways it can almost verge on imperialism uh, yeah. or Trotskyism. Um, so for instance, uh, especially when things were going down in Iran, um, there was a sort of uh, pro-regime change left that kind of is saying, oh, we're, we're just being internationalists. So like we're standing in solidarity with these people. We need to help them mm -hmm. um, via like helping them engage in regime change. Um, so how can we be sort of internationalist without being fully isolationist, but without being imperialistic as well? Yeah, exactly. So, um, within this project, there have already been sort of the regime change people that you've been mm -hmm. talking about that like took advantage of it and joined instantaneously. But also uh, within it, there are also some people who are quite anti-imperialist and anti-regime change. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think what we need to make sure of that within projects like this, not necessarily the President International itself, but that we um, have, like as the anti-imperialist left, that we don't get put off by <laughs> uh, any sphere where we need to sort of challenge or um, ch challenge these sort of uh, other leftists and not just say we're not going to join, we're not going to participate and we're going to stay in our own little corner because um, we need to make uh, those ideas of anti-imperialism um, more accessible to the public <laughs> and not just speak within our uh, echo chambers. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, one sort of criticism against the anti-imperialist left by not necessarily like a pro-regime change left, but uh, a more isolationist strand is like, mm -hmm. this, is, this is a criticism of, of Jeremy Corbyn, for instance, in, in the UK, is that he, he spent too much time focusing on internationalist ideas like um, Palestine and international solidarity with Palestine or like anti-war ideas and whatever, and not enough on the workers in his own country. So like that's something, that's another challenge that's posed to anti-imperialist and internationalists uh, insofar as Corbyn would count as, as one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And we saw we saw him being challenged, uh, being critiqued on his uh, internationalism, even from within leftist circles um, in the UK and outside, under the guise of pragmatism. Uh, and and they were like, maybe he should have just made his rhetoric a certain way just to uh, gain these blocks of voters. Um, but I think. I think we can't have, uh, we can't just capitulate basically to uh, ideas of electability uh, mm -hmm. because what purpose will that serve exactly if he just, um, if he let go of his internationalism, what made him very popular and what made him uh, basically mobilize math masses, thousands of people to join the Labour Party that was uh, before he came along that was basically 
very unpopular mm-hmm. um, uh, if he just became another sort of like status quo politician. Um, yeah. In fact, he shifted the Overton window and made people, um, I think he popularized socialism and mm-hmm. his international ideas, inter- uh, his ideas of internationalism became um, more rampant around the UK. Well, around the left in the UK, at least, <laughs> not. Well, I mean, this is uh, even not so much about internationalism per se, but I think one thing about Corbyn where he he went astray is, you know, people attempted to moralize at him and police him and whatever, and he just capitulated every time. Like, he was so apologetic. Um, And people would level these bad faith accusations of him being a bigot or an anti-Semite or whatever. Or a sexist, even, and he would just capitulate. Like he would just be like, "Yes, I'm sorry. Like we're we're gonna look into it and whatever." Um, and so it it becomes, you know, people. I think, I think, you know, now with the left, we we had Corbyn and Sanders, and they're both way too apologetic. And I'm wondering, you know, maybe in the future, and maybe the progressive international might be a start for this where we come up with a new strategy that's like more bold and less apologetic because i don't think we want to be apologizing anymore the way that corbin was no yeah corbin um should have literally purged the labor party from its (laughs) elements they there was a lot of talk of him being a stalinist or whatever but he was too soft trying to basically destroy him from within and we saw that in the labor leaks after uh, mm-hmm. like he was 2000 votes from winning the 2017 elections and uh we discover uh earlier this year that there were plans to sabotage him from within the labor party uh and what makes it very frustrating is that we know that he was trying to make room for these people within the party just so that no one can attack him for exactly that being <laughs> Um, too authoritarian in the party or like a Stalinist like they said but <laughs> I don't think he was ruthless enough and yeah. when the current Labour leader um, took power Keir St- Sir Keir Star- <laughs> Starmer he did ima- he immediately did what, what uh, Corbyn was accused of which is he purged the Labour Party from uh, Corbynites and from socialists and from working class MPs uh, yeah. and kept his allies and we didn't hear a peep about it. Um, the recent incident of which was uh, uh, Rebecca Long Bailey. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. When she literally uh, tweeted a Guardian article, sorry, an independent, the independent article, article, uh, and one line of the article was deemed anti-Semitic. Uh, and five hours later, she was she was forced to resign, basically. Okay, can, like also the, this was crazy to me because the the line in question was that the person so the article was not about Israel and the person in the article was talking about how the Israeli police and the American police collaborate and share tactics and train uh, the the Israeli police has trained some of the U.S. police and and I mean this is just a, a fact it's not someone making a grand conspiratorial claim about Israel controlling America or anything like that. This is just a fact. So now it's kind of like, like that to me was very chilling. Um, 
in terms yeah, and the article literally cites Amnesty International, which is mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. a largely uh, apolitical mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> bourgeoisie institution, basically. <laughs> uh, and then the independent then come on the next day and talk about Rebecca Long Bailey's anti-Semitism <laughs> without even mentioning that it was their article. They, that she oh my God. Yeah. I and then she comes it. out and apologizes. She doesn't even stand by what she did. Yeah. No, I know. Like, I I think this is it, though. Like, everyone's... Very, and Ken and I have talked about this in the podcast. People are just very used to capitulating to, like, a mob. And mm. no one will stand by them, you know? Like, the Labour Party just, just threw her in the trash bin, essentially. Mm-hmm. um because it's easy that's it's that's like the cowardly route right like that's the route where you're gonna say okay yeah this person's a liability and so we're just gonna dispose of them um but i think yeah and even like the independent they're gonna capitalize on that they're gonna capitalize on the mob outrage and and so on but it's it's very tragic to me i have to say when it comes to media and i guess i mean you're in the uk so you're in the belly of the beast i have to say uk media is probably the craziest like place for media like it's it's deranged i swear it's insane like the tabloids and stuff are just unreal and i mean canadian media is not great it's actually mostly owned by one company um so it's extremely heavily monopolized and uh uh you know now people are trying to branch out and start independent media but it's not great here is my point and there is a lot of sensationalist reporting but i've never seen anything like what's in the uk uh like even the daily mail to me just blows my mind the way yeah, they it's report. just it's just insane every day and there's a Rupert Murdoch like free newspaper called the Evening Standard that just gets uh distributed for free basically uh and it's on the if you ride the tube uh or public transport it's there all the time and during the during the the month before the general election in December basically every day it was Jeremy Corbyn and anti-semitism every yeah. single day you'd find that and like it's no wonder it's um, not yeah it's it's also just it's not even like lightly like oh he said something anti-semitic like the headlines will basically be like jeremy corbyn is literally hitler or like yeah. another holocaust will happen if we elect jeremy corbyn like it's so dramatic or well. the bbc which is seen as neutral quote-unquote neutral uh it, the bbc program literally doctored a russian hat on jeremy corbyn's head one time what i didn't <laughs> know that i'll send you that after this episode that's it's just so funny like yeah. why it's it's just absurd to me um, yeah i guess it's like it's lucrative like people get i mean we're talking about it right now but but there's just so many things about british media that just makes me laugh i mean it's uh i have i've only been to the uk once so i can't really say much about society at large but it it does make me chuckle and the media figures especially like people like pierce morgan for instance yeah uh they're just very strange and then there's also like 
I find that like uniquely like the Muslims and the feminists are both oh, like so God. like there's there's a brand of UK oh, Islam and UK feminism and it's both yeah. both of them are so weird. <laughs> and like anti-trans discourse and all of that. Mm. Yeah, it's very it's like all concentrated in the UK. And so, like, I mean, there's always this joke about whenever there's, like, some crazy thing that happens on Muslim Twitter, I'm always just, like, it's a UK. (laughs) And it always is. It it just, I don't know why, but it just always is. So, I don't know. Because it's basically, um, there's there's a lot of radicalization that happens inside you. I don't want to generalize. Mm-hmm. but 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 it like radical a lot of radicalization happens um uh, but like a, a lot of people are radicalized in the uk and then they fly off and join isis mm-hmm. and the place of radicalization that happens is in the uk not in muslim countries there's a lot of like foreign fighters that that's mm-hmm. what they call them and they're from the uk i i, I think like you know it's 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 not necessary it, I, because we're not saying here okay they're like we're not making an essentialist claim that this is what like UK Islam is like I think what the issue is is there's like a sort of identity crisis for second generation diaspora um I mean like I don't know because I I mean I am second gen and I (laughs) have not decided to become Salafi but um (laughs) (laughs) but I think I, I mean you know if you your parents come from a different place and they're culturally not totally in line with the what's going on where you're at and then you get bullied in school or whatever Mm -hmm. um you might be for like being different so you feel like you're not really part of either culture and you feel alienated I could totally see that happening Ken and I really we're we're joking about this but it would be interesting to talk to someone who was radicalized like online. yeah yeah definitely like we went on like isis.com or whatever i don't know <laughs> i'm very active on the isis forums <laughs> i actually okay. want to check that out right now one sec or like, yeah. <laughs> well they are very savvy they're a lot more savvy than like al-qaeda was so they yeah uh, they i remember there was this twitter account that was like you know the the cat meme like the icon has cheeseburger yeah yeah, yeah. they made one called uh icon has islamic state please (laughs) and like there was just all those cat memes but like isis related it's very strange um but uh ken are you are you on it it's not as easy to find as i hoped (laughs) or maybe that's good i don't know the internet censors are at it again. Where to I mean, find? It's unacceptable. <laughs> <laughs> we want this out in the open. <laughs> I mean, you can do it fine, but like if I try to do it now, I'll find the home office at my door. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to do that. We get Ken to do all the uh, terrorist Googling. Yeah, um, that's, good. that's he, good. He doesn't have any Arabic last name or anything like that. Um, <laughs> But I fully get it, like what you, what you talked about being like a diaspora <laughs> Muslim or whatever. Because in Egypt, for example, when I'm in Egypt, I'm like, fuck this, Islam is oppressing us, I'm rebelling, I'm doing mm-hmm. whatever I want, I like argue against it. But when I'm here, I'm like, 
um, stop being Islamophobic, please. Like, <laughs> and it's basically the same arguments that I use, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I totally get it. I, I grew up, like, mostly raised Christian because, like, my Muslim side of the family, they're not really religious. Like, they're very, uh, like, a lot of uh, Lebanese and Egyptian Christians are so into it. <laughs> and like like more than the muslims are um, yeah. or maybe that's just my family like the christians are so into it and they're like yeah like um so i grew up hearing all about like the christian persecution and the uh muslim brotherhood in egypt for instance um and then when the islamophobia discourse kind of became more popular i was like wait what like i grew up hearing that like these guys are like telling my grandmother to like take her cross off in public and stuff yeah. like I whatever so then you have to kind of learn like okay and I've said this before on the pod is like these kinds of bigotries or or conflicts are just not the same in every part of the world no, you cannot not. take discourse about Christians here and uh say that it applies in Egypt because it just doesn't um it's just so completely different um which is also why it's annoying when like here a lot of people are like as christians we're so oppressed we're so persecuted and then they point at the middle east as evidence like no that's not you guys (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly like it's a totally totally different uh scenario um i'm trying to get on the dark web maybe that's where the, the forums are Oh my god. You should get a dark web specialist to join this. <laughs> anyway. Jamie, pull that shit up. Um, yeah, I had a friend once who was telling me like that they really liked there was like metal from like ISIS they put out. And he was like, Yeah, it's really good. And I was like, I am not listening to that at all. You like that is a terrible idea. And he was saying, No, it's actually just really good. Like it slaps. Like I don't agree. Like I don't know what they're saying. I don't agree with their mission, but is 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 it Sunny the Sorum, the song? <laughs> I don't know. I don't <laughs> Well Google that because I'm not gonna Google it. I'm gonna send you the name and you can find it. I'm not it. Googling it. Ken will yeah, what's it. what's the name? Can you type it? Yeah, wait. Um I'm not sure I can actually type it. Wait, let me find it. If I find uh the police at my door, I'm gonna blame you guys. Yeah. It'll be good it'll be good publicity for you. For the pod. Well good thing we're not doing this episode when I was in Egypt. We didn't do this episode when I was in Egypt, because if yeah. I Google that <laughs> Just gonna get fucked up by CC. Yeah, exactly. Well, so there's been some interesting uh, cases of arrest over there. Try googling that. <laughs> oh, nice, thanks. I, I like, I. It seems to me that it's like a peak police state. Yeah. Um, but I was, I remember reading about how one of my favorite singers there, uh, Shireen. <laughs> uh, like I love Shireen. I just like no no shame. I I think she's a great singer. Um, she yeah, I, I I heard she got in trouble for saying the Nile water is dirty, or something yeah. like that. And uh, I was like free Shireen for a while. <laughs> yeah, that, was, that was insane. She, so she so she was at a concert I think in Tunisia, and she said that 
the Nile. Because she has a song called Mashriptish uh, Minidha, and that's mm -hmm. because there's a saying that if you drink from the Nile in Egypt, then you always come back to Egypt. Mm, uh, yeah. so, she, so she was singing that song and then she joked around. She was like, but don't drink, drink from the Nile because it's actually dirty, which is like <laughs> a thing that you'd say. And then because we have an insane, uh, like, uh, an insane um, body in the state that uh, focuses on Egypt's, like, public image, <laughs> They and they they want to they want to be useful to the state, so they automatically latched on that, and they were like, uh, "Shireen is ruining our image. We have to find her. We have to um, penalize her." Uh, and we're we're currently living at a time where society is very like punitive in a sense, mm -hmm. where if you don't do if you do something that like angers society or the state people want to make uh people want to punish you publicly or like make you pay for your sins publicly yeah make an example terrifying. Mm -hmm. um because currently for example um egypt has been arresting uh girls on tiktok like egyptian girls who are from um quite like working class families and stuff who found on TikTok, who found fame on TikTok and like they were making money on TikTok by basically, you know, dancing like, you know, like teens in uh, the US uh, and Canada and the UK do uh, dancing while wearing like crop tops or whatever. And they arrested like four or five girls for public indecency and uh, I know prostitution and stuff like that. And all they're doing is basically just dancing. Um, that's insane yeah it has been really insane and it's it's tied to their class as well because you know if like if it was like a famous actress or like the daughters of businessmen um or even me like it wouldn't have happened but it's like how dare these girls uh from the lower classes try to uh you know be free <laughs> Yeah, that's oh my god, that is that is very sad. They, yeah. I, I mean, that is definitely a thing in the Middle East too. Like your class really depends on like whether you'll get in trouble or not for certain things. Even yeah. like drug laws, you know, like yeah, like, I, it's the same in Egypt. Definitely, like I go to a lot of parties that have drugs in them, but like there are a lot of people in jail because of because basic possession of hash as well mm -hmm. you know what i guess it's kind of like that here too and yeah. like in in the u.s especially like you see these well people. it's legal in canada now yeah that's true um but you see a lot of people in like the american jails for like low-level drug offenses and they're almost always poor and black um yeah. so that's I mean, I it guess it smells so. so dank right now. Now that, funnily enough, that we're talking about this, there's like a drug house next door. <laughs> it's so loud right now. Fun. Anyways, you it's like a student experience that you I never have. I am. It's wild. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, I want to go. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I wanted to go back to, uh, I think you said the intellectual defeat of the West or of the left since the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, yeah. That's not like from anecdotal kind of internet perusing what I perceive. Could you like maybe um, elaborate on that? 
Um, so basically, um, after the fall of the Soviet Union, right, uh, people like Francis Fukuyama, who wrote The End of History, uh, the worst thing <laughs> I've ever read. Next yeah. to Clash of Civilizations. Oh my God, I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> so basically, what I'm trying to say is it's the intellectual defeat of the left in the West, not in third world countries, because these countries still uh, maintain some traditions of socialism. But in, in the West, it's like everyone with the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, um, social Democrats and leftists in the West kind of like gave up on uh, socialism at the time uh, because of, you know, they considered the Soviet Union a failed experiment. Um, and after that, you could tell that by the way, you know, history was written after that. Um, mm -hmm. When when you read history and like anything that was on the other side of the Iron Curtain, like for example, let's take the DDR as an example. If, if you read about it, it's all like, oh, it's known as the Stasi state or whatever. Um, and there, there's no like in-depth nuance or analysis of it. There was no mm -hmm. talk of like um, the African and like Asian students who were there and who like studied for free basically. And it wasn't even like social science, it was like medicine or like engineering or whatever. But it's just known as like years, like maybe six years of history, just, I don't know, uh, uh, summarized in like police state and that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a hegemony kind of thing, right? Like, so, so I think though, like what Ken has observed is more the winning of a sort of liberal culture war. Because yeah. I do think culturally liberalism has, has won, but that's not necessarily leftist economically. It's more just like, I think progressive social values are, are winning the culture war now. Um, but that's not necessarily the same as like, actual materialist socialist uh ideas winning out because we still have this assumption in favor of capitalist rationality as um some have written before uh yeah so i i think people conflate the culture war with like actual like the, like the materialist end of things which is like about our relationship to production and finance and stuff like that so i think there's it's actually very interesting because there's a disconnect and people think um i i think it kind of ties into the end of history thing because there's like this idea that like that's it we've reached liberalism and like that's where we're at and like we've definitively came to the conclusion that liberalism is the way to structure society and what that meant was more of an economic liberalism than like a social liberalism but i think that that gave way to a lot of social liberalism because i think economic liberalism in a sense it's it's a it's it's amoral and it's it's not it doesn't say anything about what social roles people have to play this is why we have like intersectional imperialism as mm. we discussed before uh this is why corporations have shifted to using progressive language they don't care they'll grasp onto whatever culture war uh seems to be you know was going to give them good marketing so i think yeah, that, that 
that's a good point but i still i still feel the majority of people maybe under 30 use like are pretty much leftward pushing if that makes sense and it hasn't it hasn't taken effect yet but does does that is that something you you guys see or well, is this I, just totally where you're standing and what you're perceiving type thing I think though, as, as from a materialist perspective, it's important to consider who has power. Mm -hmm. Because like, I'm not so much concerned about what people's attitudes are towards like social. And I, I don't think first of all, that millennials or Zoomers are really into socialism as such. I think they're into progressivism mm -hmm. and they're into welfare state liberalism, um, which is all good and well for whatever like i'm not pressuring mm -hmm. anyone to anything but i do think where the centers of power lie those are by and large capitalist um mm -hmm. I, I don't do you think, think you think you think we'll see a, a takeover or it just isn't gonna happen i think the problem is right now and i i said this a little bit with corbin and, and bernie is like socialists think that it's just enough to be socialist and to win the hearts of the young people which they've done like bernie and corbin have both been beloved but mm -hmm. they apologize for everything and so they don't have it's almost like they don't have the balls to seize the power um because people will try to portray them dishonestly people are going to try to resist them and portray them in certain like, like, I don't know if you followed the Corbin thing, but it was just insane. Like, mm -hmm. the the way that people made it sound like is, like, Corbin has, like, this, like, red fury out for British Jewish people and, like, his support. Like, I don't, I don't even think his support for Palestine was, like, major or a major no, part of him state solution and everything yeah like he had a very vanilla take on it but it's just you know people will try to find a way to take you down and i think the problem is is with today's popular socialist leaders they're all very soft and they all apologize and capitulate to everything um and they capitulate to cultural liberalism too much in my opinion uh mm -hmm. Exactly. And like to add to that, like we cannot have internationalism that an internationalism that is based on like, you know, liberal sympathy, like, oh, I feel bad for um, hungry Yemeni kids. I feel bad for prisoners in Egypt. I feel bad for women in Saudi Arabia. Like it has mm -hmm. to be more substantial than that. And I feel that going back to my earlier point, I feel that that is, again, tied to um, um, the collapse of the Soviet Union and like the NGOization of things, uh, yes. like like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch, and like this shift of like the human rights movement from something that is like a grassroots-led movement that contributed largely to decolonization in the sixties and seventies to something that is basically uh, become very elitist and that belongs to like institutions and is very top down where you go appeal to your favorite <laughs> human rights organization be it amnesty or human rights watch mm -hmm. and then they have this like uh largely vacuous uh, campaign that is very apolitical and doesn't tackle the root causes of things that is like yeah oh um uh, this this single prisoner 
was imprisoned in Egypt helped free him or whatever. You know? Yeah, I, I think also there's with this NGO human rights thing complex or whatever, there's also this tendency to like chastise and moralize people for not being like culturally liberal enough in like the proper sense. Like there's and I think Ben, our, our guest from last week, had mentioned this on his podcast, is like there's this sort of talking down to like poor Latin Americans who are like say like pro-life uh which i'm not pro-life i'm pro-choice but like there's this like you know they have like these catholic traditions and whatever and there's been a lot of like well there's been a lot of like wealthy elite liberals who um want regime change in these countries and then they'll say like oh well like this government hates women even though the government's like giving women so many tools to get out of poverty and whatever, but they kind of shoehorn this like cultural liberalism into seem like they're the morally righteous and like humane people when it's like, you can't like, yeah, I don't know if that even makes sense, but I, I've just kind of noticed that and noticed this sort of moral That makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah, definitely. That makes a lot of sense. And like, I don't know, the epitome of like what Amnesty International and stuff stands for is basically, uh, for example, in 1976, Milton Friedman won the Nobel Economics Prize for restructuring the economy of Chile. Uh, which is basically like installing... And we know what happened there. Installing Benchay and like the, the assassination of Salvador Allende. And he won the economics uh, um, uh, Nobel Prize for that. And then a year later, Amnesty International won the Nobel Peace Prize for covering uh, the human rights ab abuses in Chile. And that was like, so like, how is that not tied to that? It was completely abstracted from the material reality of things. And in that, like, if you go and read that report, that Amnesty report on Chile, it does not mention regime change once. It does not mention uh, the change, the full scale change of like an economic system. And like basically that all of the, these human rights abuses happened because it was basically forcing people to accept these economic changes that they didn't want. Yeah, well, Chile, I think is such a great example of like the way, what I mean with like liberal capitalism just being like this like, blob that's willing to morph into whatever will let it thrive right because people like Friedman and his group Friedman's actually the guy who made me a socialist it's it's uh that's a story for another day but he uh the the sort of um you see this like they, they have this like libertarian language of like freedom and and all this but they're willing to install a fascist forcibly install a fascist in another country for their economic system to thrive essentially mm -hmm. um would you be willing to forcibly install like a communist though would i yeah no i i i do think that you cannot like in a different country i do not think that like i like okay here's a good example um a lot of people we're talking about like okay was what if there was like a coup of donald trump after the u.s elections 
Well, you know what? I think Egypt's a great example um, because they essentially overthrew a tyrannical government, but then kind of replaced it with not a great government. So like overthrowing a bad government doesn't really guarantee you anything and trying to install a certain leader in that respect doesn't really guarantee you anything. Either. Yeah, I would agree. Especially when this country, I'm talking about Egypt, of course, like there's been a complete erosion of like a position and of like leftism in general. Uh, oh. There are no political organizations. There's no political because it's uh, been largely penalized by uh, jail or even worth death. Oh, so, uh, so this, yeah. But like, so if, if radical regime change doesn't work, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, I was just going to add. So there's simply like, there was simply no political leadership to replace the current one. No organized political leadership, that is. And the Muslim Brotherhood was the only organized organization. Yeah, that was essentially what my thesis was about. And I think um, leftists kind of make this mistake of fetishizing mass protests. Um, and I see this in Hong Kong, especially, where they're like, look how cool the tactics are. They're using lasers and blah, 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 blah. But, um, like, if, so if, if radical, like, regime change doesn't work, what are you left with with incremental change? Um, so I think we should define regime change, right? Like, regime change is not, like, a bottom-up, like, movement of the people of that of a sovereign country right regime change is another country trying to forcibly engineer a political society to suit their needs and to help them maintain control over a particular political well, system. that's how so, the term is usually used but it could be either way if you just think about the literal term regime and then the literal term change right but but that's like we have to think about how it's used in ordinary thought, right? Like it's, it is, hmm. we're talking about basically nullifying a po the, the wishes of a people about the popular government, right? Like these are, Allende was a extremely popular and beloved leader. And so democratically we're elected. And democratically elected. And we're essentially having people that say, okay, well, no, I don't want this result. And they like want to be able to have leadership in a country that is not theirs that will help them maintain their economic interests. Yeah. And more speaking specifically, like there seems to be no, we, I think we said this last time, but there's no neat answer to these problems. And I'm suspicious of individuals and you hear it so much. So I might be oversensitive, but I'm, se I'm, I'm sensitive to individuals who assert that there's a very simple way forward. Like if my side was going to win now, it would all be good. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah. you still, you can't like lie down and be like, we can't do any change. Um, like building socialism and like changing history is a very like messy process. It's a very, it's not going to be sailing. And like we find this a lot where or like intellectuals sitting in the West or something like point at socialist processes in um, global South countries and they're like, oh, it's not perfect. The socialism is not perfect. The socialism is messy. Therefore, it's useless to me. Yeah, no, I, I thought but like the incremental change phrase is one that I find kind of funny because it's like a shibboleth among the left. Like 
that's the wrong isn't it isn't that that's the reaction i've had i've seen i don't think so i think i think there's this is exactly what lenin has has critiqued about leftists who expect this like neat and like revolutionary change right like this maybe i'm talking to the wrong leftists so i get the good ones on this podcast you gotta read you gotta read lenin my friend Mm -hmm. um but but he has this excellent uh uh, there's a a piece by him called left-wing communism and infantile disorder and it's so funny and he like kind of critiques these like utopian leftists that like you know nothing's good enough if like you know if we want to say get like a democratic socialist in power that might be doing incremental change it's like no 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 like we're pure that's not pure enough for us like we (laughs) um anyway it's a good text and uh i I can't do it justice by explaining it but yeah and like lenin is pretty funny and like snarky (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, you know, people, I have, this is my criticism of both leftists and non-leftists. So there's a, there's a section of, of leftists who get mad when you critique other leftists because they're like, isn't there something bigger that you could be worrying about on the right? And I'm like, read all the classic leftists. Lenin's entire bibliography is him talking shit to other leftists. <laughs> and uh and that my same critique goes to you know right-wingers who are like left leftists don't want debate uh there is extremely lively debate uh and always has been in the history of of socialism uh i mean marx's whole body of work a lot of it is him responding to and disagreeing with pre-marxist socialists um so yeah i mean I think it's, I think the tradition of Marxist, you know, sassy, sassily going at each other is, is cute. It's endearing and I'm good with it. <laughs> what um, else should we, oh man, <laughs> I, got, I got the COVID throat. <laughs> I had a cough this morning too and I was like, oh fuck. You're like, is it the weed or is it? Like- <laughs> <laughs> it's actually the crack. Um, no, uh, it's. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but I, I, I do think um, what the, this whole like protest porn thing and what I was saying with the yeah. Hong Kong and uh, and all this other stuff is. Um, I think that there's a confusion that, you know, where people think that, like, going out on the streets, like, having enough bodies is a strategy, whereas I think it's more of an initial act of pressure. So, I mean, like, the Egyptian protests in uh, 2011 were very initially inspiring. It was a response to uh, a guy who was murdered by the police. Um, but then, you know, eventually you need to start organizing, and this is like the, my inner Lenin coming out, but you need to start organizing like a central structure, um, that is going to move beyond simply gathering in the streets. Um, because if you just have the gatherings and you just let other people organize, I think this is the problem with like Hong Kong and also, uh, in Syria is that 
you end up like the most powerful and financially backed group is going to end up being the head of the protests and then they're going to be the ones that take power so it's kind of like what you were saying like the muslim brotherhood that was all that there was yeah in terms of organized uh protest and so of course then like that's what's going to happen that was my beef with a, a lot of the syria discourses i was like look i'm happy to to criticize the existing power but what are you going to replace it with are you like it when the main opposition when the most well-funded opposition is backed by like saudi and turkey um yeah. <laughs> like yeah. what exactly. what are christian syrians like are that you're just excluded like a good portion of the population from your revolution um and so but i think like you know here there's such a fetishization of just like the act of protesting um like just holding a sign and like having a witty sign is seen as like (laughs) murdered by words (laughs) yeah well right yeah it's just so aesthetic and not uh like the i want to see a plan I don't want to just see a sign. I mean, like, the first few days, fine. But you got to, like, have something afterwards. And I think that's that's been a very valuable critique uh, from someone like Lennon and also Fanon. There's a chapter in Wretched of the Earth that I would recommend to the listeners called uh, The Grandeur and Weakness of Spontaneity. Or just read the whole book because it's yeah, or read the whole book. It's great. <laughs> yeah. It's a great book. I it's it's one of my favorites for sure. Um, like what you were talking about exactly, and like this, I think also started in the nineties about this trend of, of within academia um, to theorize like spontaneity and take mm-hmm. spontaneity out of its context and be like. Uh, just study what people are doing now. Like, like people are rising spontaneously here now. People rose spontaneously there, but they just don't. They don't discuss why or how or how, like what came before this rebellion. What mm-hmm. organizing happened? Like the tough part, the meaty part. And yeah, uh, and like Rosa Luxemburg wrote about spontaneity and wrote about. Um, uh, she wrote about it from a Marxist perspective and she was interested in like the dialectical interplay between this continuity and organization and like the vanguard. Mm-hmm. And that's where she, um, that's where she plays spontaneity. But if you just speak about like, Oh, I, I don't know. I can't, um, I, there's nothing happening around me. There's no spontaneous action. So I can't be political. Uh, <laughs> But like people just need to focus on organization. How do we, um, what work we need to do before, you know. Yeah. And in the context of Egypt, we, uh, there's a lot to be said about like uprisings that happened before the 2011 revolution, like in 2006, 2007, 2008 in Ghazm Mahalla, which is is like where the largest textile factories are. uh, there were protests, uh, uh, the largest Mubarak protests happened by factory workers who were holding up signs like in 2007 that were like uh, against IMF and like colonialism. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
where there was a crackdown in 2006. Like you can study all of these things that happened beforehand as well and not yeah. take us out of it. They're yeah, coming. there there was a sort of fetishizing again, uh, also by the academics of, during yeah. the Arab Spring, where they made it seem like this unique event, where like all the Arabs just woke up at once and were like, yeah. "Oh, actually, <laughs> our governments are bad." And I'm like, "Have you met like a single Arab? Like all they do is complain <laughs> about the government. Like that's exactly. <laughs> like they know it's bad." <laughs> it's like, um, yeah. So, so yeah, I think that's, that's, done. and I really like what you said earlier, but you know, this revolution or revolutionary change is actually ongoing. It's not one event. Uh, yeah. and, and there's a kind of leftist that's like, well, you didn't do it in one shot. Okay. Well, you're not <laughs> proper leftist, you know? And so, uh, no, it takes, it takes years. It's, it's it takes a lifetime. Um, these are things that we grow into as a society. Yeah, and also to add on what you said, which was very important, is that protests are just a tactic. Mm -hmm. Just because there's a protest doesn't mean that the people protesting are in the right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Going back to Hong Kong. It's just a tactic. You just, you need to analyze the, you know, like the class aspect of the protest, the material aspects, like who are these people protesting? What are they protesting for? How did it start? Not just because there's a protest and it means there's uh it's in the right mm -hmm. yeah yeah that's <laughs> um well as a as a on a lighter note uh i had it's seen that you went to the world cup in moscow <laughs> I, did. Uh, I am so jealous that you went to moscow i i was just reading audrey lord's book where she was talking about going there like her experience there my the favorite my favorite cities that i've ever visited it's amazing it I went beautiful. Both st petersburg but like Mo moscow is my favorite so did you see the uh like the dead <laughs> lenin thing like his preserved no it was under construction the period i was there i was so sad but Aww. i did see a lenin mural in um in moscow's amazing underground mm, which yeah, i you showed me that which I recommend that if ever if anyone goes there just to randomly go to underground stations. They're in yeah. heritage site. They're just beautiful. And I think they just symbolize that um the public can see like beautiful things. <laughs> it doesn't I, have to be yeah. a palace. It doesn't have to be somewhere exclusive. Like the people can have beauty. <laughs> I would love to go there. I like joked in my house that it would be like a hat my hajj because I because <laughs> Dostoevsky's my favorite writer and London's like my favorite <laughs> political theorist. Um but but yeah no that's that's so cool. I I didn't I don't really follow soccer or football uh very closely. I know Ken does. Um but yeah, how, how who won that, that World Cup? France. Right, right, right. Yeah. Wait, what year was that again? Uh, 2018. Okay, nice, nice. So Egypt's been like kind of up and coming on the on the on the <laughs> world stage there because you got uh, Salah. We did terribly, oh, yeah, yeah. terribly in that World Cup. <laughs> Like oh my god the first time we've ever we've been to the world cup in 28 years mm, yeah. um, and what's really funny is this isn't even our best team in a while our best team was when we were winning 
uh, AFCON, but we never really got to the World Cup when we had that team. <laughs> I, yeah, I never see like Middle Eastern countries in like world sports ever. I think Lebanon has like like in the Olympics they had like one like they qualified for like one event and it was like the shooting one. And I was like <laughs> I was like, yeah, of course, Lebanese people love their guns. <laughs> yeah. North African countries are good at football. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know Egypt is. I didn't know about any of the other ones. Yeah, Egypt, Algeria, and Morocco. Ooh, interesting. Yeah. yeah, I just know about about Mo because yeah. I, I see all these like sensual pictures of him. <laughs> really, I need to Google like, it. Like having showers and stuff. Well, it's <laughs> it's so funny because I, like if a woman from from Egypt or any Middle Eastern country did that, they would get so roasted. Yeah, um, I mean, I I love him and everything. Don't get me wrong. And he's like basically a, like a god in Egypt right now. Mm-hmm. But there was this whole incident during um, the last uh, African Cup of Nations where there was a sexual harassment scandal in the Egyptian national team. One of our players, Faldam Rwarda, like a lot of women came out against him. And, like he's a serial sexual harasser. He doesn't leave women alone. And then the Egyptian um, uh, Football Federation found that out and then kicked him out of the camp, essentially, during the African Cup of Nations. And then the team, led by Mo Salah, went and appealed and got him back on. And, like, that was when um, a lot of people in the country, like, turned against Mo. Our fave is problematic exactly (laughs) he's hot as hell though so (laughs) like those pictures are fire gotta say i don't even think that it's hot like because it's he just looks like i like he looks too like egyptian he triggers me (laughs) (laughs) oh my god i yeah maybe me with lebanese men um it was really funny actually I, I dated a Lebanese guy once and uh we both had like at the time I dye my hair like every day but at the time I had uh dark hair and green eyes and so did he and he's a triplet and there was a family dinner or whatever and then someone met me and him and the woman said to me oh are you one of the triplets so she thought I was his <laughs> sister Kind of hot. Um, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh my god, okay." Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that was the last time I dated inside my race. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can't anymore. <laughs> you can't come back from that. No, I. <laughs> um, what, what's that like? Couple that model? I think Barbara Palvin, I think, or something, and Dylan Sprouse. They 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 look like siblings. They look like the. History. Oh my god, that's so <laughs> funny. Oh <my> god. <laughs> Gender profile: seeking someone who looks like my sister. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! So I I also have a, a question for you because you what? you came under fire on Twitter because you <laughs> tweeted that Shadi Hamid is the worst thing to come out of Egypt. <laughs> Uh, so, so my question is, 
<laughs> I know my opinion is the best things to come out of Egypt are my grandmother's cooking and the shut up your mouse Obama woman. <laughs> yeah. What what do you think are the best things to come out of Egypt? Oh my god, I can't say that. Like that would be like Egyptian <laughs> chauvinism. <laughs> I think our humor <laughs> and uh uh our uh, cultural hegemony <laughs> over the <laughs> Uh, it's true every every like middle eastern movie it's always an egyptian arabic yeah oh really yeah interesting yeah my dad watches all these like soap operas and stuff <laughs> they're really funny they're really dramatic they're too dramatic <laughs> <laughs> yeah i just wanted to contrast something with the shoddy thing you know you yeah. gotta you gotta say the worst and, and the best Shadi's uh, like epitome of like you know the egyptian americanized pundit he's like he's fully american he's not even egyptian at this point but like he uses his egyptianness and it suits him he's like i came out of an extremely oppressive country (laughs) (laughs) we live in paradise here in comparison to the third world i don't know how you people can even critique america it saved me (laughs) Isn't like America giving so much like money and weapons to Egypt? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, that's okay. like what Jesus says. He's like th- those people who are like basically considered native informants. Like this yeah. is like the easiest grift. If I, I don't go out and do this right now, coming out of Egypt, I would make so much money. Right? <laughs> I was just talking about that with my mom yesterday. Like, yeah, you know, if we were to just be like. You know, when, when the, the tensions get high in Lebanon, like, just someone goes on TV and says, like, I yearn for my country's freedom. <laughs> and, like, <laughs> exactly. America, please come bomb us. Yeah, yeah. Well, so there was a video on Twitter that I thought was really funny, and it was from a pro-regime change account. And it was a kid in Iran struggling to open a banana. And it's like, this this kid doesn't even know what a banana was like I weep for my country and it's just like he's just having a hard time opening the banana like it's not a big deal like that I sounds like intimidating <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like in in Cuba pizzas have condoms as toppings or something like that as a topping yeah mm. like it's so outrageous it's not <laughs> but you can say anything that's the funny thing you can literally say anything if i went on twitter and i said like i'm lebanese and and like first of all i grew up here but i could literally just go on and say yeah i'm lebanese and hezbollah uh made me like (laughs) never eat a banana in my life like people (laughs) people would like like retweet and be like wow so sad like this is why we you can come on twitter and say i'm lebanese and like two hezbollah sources yesterday told me that they're uh in venezuela helping them (laughs) and people would believe that it's so funny like the hezbollah discourse is hilarious to me because it's like the way like you would think i don't know if you've been to lebanon but yeah, I've been three times. Yeah, it's a, it's a hot spot for vacation. But like you, you know that it's like like people act like Hezbollah has like this grip on everybody where like you can't do anything, and uh, like and they think everywhere they don't they think Hezbollah is in Venezuela. They think they're everywhere, and I'm like, 
the Lebanese political system can't even get people to stop like shooting their guns in the air. Like, what do you? What makes you think they're going to be able to impose Islamic law? <laughs> you have like, you have like the prime minister being like, like just begging, like, please, guys, can you stop like shooting your guns in the air? You're killing people, <laughs> and like <laughs> that's the extent of like government control. Um, and so, and people are like, wow, yeah, all the women have to veil, and I'm like. <laughs> I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's... Hmm? It actually blew my mind that a bullet coming down kills people. I don't know. I thought it would be slower than when it was fired. Like, I thought terminal velocity would be slower, but that's a definitely an aside. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it's a big problem. Um, apparently, people, there's, like, a problem with celebratory gunfire. I don't yeah. know if this is a thing in Egypt too, but like people like, yeah, love to shoot guns in the air to like celebrate things, At or if they're mad. Yeah, like rifles and stuff, you shoot them in the air to celebrate. Yeah, it's really strange. I'm like, <laughs> we should end every episode with like a a pop. Uh, yeah, a couple <laughs> rounds. <laughs> yeah, I. Oh my god, that's just that's so funny to me. So okay, so the best thing out of Egypt is the humor, the culture. Worst and thing. Cool. Worst thing could be shoddy and uh, the uh, all brotherhood. The other, <laughs> yeah, and all of the other uh, Egypt pundits that are like, uh, in America, save us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, it's it's time to wrap it up. Mm-hmm. Um. So. We would like to thank you very much for coming on, Hal. Yeah, thanks, thanks for coming on. Uh, where, so where can we find you? We know your Twitter is at not Nahal, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so everybody follow Nahal. I'll link uh, your article in the uh, description. We will not be linking the uh, ISIS stuff. Only for the premium. Only for the... <laughs> Find that out yourselves, but don't really told you so. Yeah, or or any of that. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. If you want to show us some love, hit us up on Patreon.com/slash/UnacceptablePodcast. Uh, Ken's a starving artist. Uh, if any of you are sugar moms, uh, hit us up as well. <laughs> and have a good week. Be well.